For all my children of the light, born in the sinning, but steady striving to do right. My people are warriors, all we know is to fight. Pray, they see God in everything I write here. So much for having me. I'm doing well, thanks. Wonderful. I missed you at the top. I think it was just still coming back in. So I, I think we have you now. It's good to see you. How are you? How's the state of the race? All right. Uh, the state of the race is really good. Uh, here in, uh, in about a week, we have, uh, if you just want to talk about polling alone, we're doing very well. We started out with nine points down in February. Then we uh, worked so hard, it came down to five points down in August. And about uh, three weeks ago, went to one point down. And I'll save you now. I've seen some more recent polling. It's even better. All right. So, so we feel really, really good about it. And that's just because our message is resonating. You know, Mississippi um, is last still. I mean, I'm 66 years old. It was last when I was born. And uh, relatively speaking, we're still last. Last in health care, last in education, last in uh, job opportunities, last in income, last, last, last. And uh, people just tired of it. They're just tired of it. And uh, here in Mississippi, we've got more black voters per capita than any state in the nation. Yeah. So we start with a really good basis of support because I'm going to get 99% of that vote. It just matters how much of it comes out. And then on white vote, Mississippi is a 60-40 white black state. And uh, 19 months ago when we ran, we got 47% of the vote, even though we only had six months to run. So I knew we could do better if we had more time. So now we are doing better. Uh, we're going to get the black vote out. And I got 18% of the white vote 19 months ago. We only have to get four more percent, 22, we believe, to win, even in a presidential cycle. So I think we're doing very, very well. Uh, you know, in Mississippi, things are changing. The Confederate flag has come down. And I'm going to show your viewers. You know, we got this this flag, you know, it's... Um, it replaces the Confederate flag with that with that Confederate emblem, and this is, uh, I think, a harbinger of things to come. People people wanted a state with a better image, a state that's more inclusive, more welcoming. They're just tired of all this bad image we have, and I believe that because of that, they're going to send the best image makeover that Mississippi's ever seen. That's an African American man to the U.S. Senate, and that would be me. Wow. So the the question I have for you is um, one of the people that I believe um, I just almost have a spiritual connection to is Fannie Lou Hamer, yep. um, who, of course, hails from your great state. If there's something um, that you can tell this audience about the importance of not only building on her legacy to fight for the right to vote, but I believe that. Um, you know, she didn't just fight for us to have that access. Mike, she fought for us to ensure that we finally um, leaned into and embraced our political power. What yep. does it look like to you to embrace our political power in this year of our Lord 2020? Well, like you, I have a special connection to Fannie Lou Mississippi Freedom of Democratic Party. She knew, you know, she knew in 1964 she couldn't win. But it's just because African-Americans were, were reticent to register the vote. She had to be that, that load star, you, you know, that God in light to give them courage to register the vote. And she was beaten for it. She was fired from a job from the plantation. And uh, she still ran for Congress. And guess who followed her as uh, one who won in 1986? 
That would be my guess. So I was the first black congressman, every elected for Mississippi to construction. You know, you worked with that with the black caucus, you know, that, that we were there. And uh, so, I mean, I'm standing on Fatty Lou's shoulders. Had she not tried 64, yeah. I could have never won in, in 86. So, so it's my job, as it was her job to build, it's my job to build, uh, to expand it. So uh, whatever we can do here in this election, we're building the runway so that our collective planes can take off. And we're building the grid so that I can cross and so that others behind me can cross. And that's our responsibility. I mean, she fought, bled, and died like John Lewis uh, for the right to vote. And I was yeah. just tell everybody, you don't take it for granted. It's coming here, and uh, it's nothing to play with in a pandemic. So uh, we're running. Mm-hmm. We're running in her spirit, but also in the spirit of Meg Evers and uh, Bernard Damer, yes. which who was uh, firebombed in Hattiesburg, Mississippi, for registered vote. So all of those uh, guide me, uh, and I hope to be an inspiration to others as I believe will win. Yes, and you already been such an inspiration as you talked about, Mike. You were um, elected to Congress in '86. When you when you're out campaigning now, and I know that circumstances are so difficult because, of course, we're you're not only just campaigning in Mississippi, you're also doing so in the midst of COVID. Talk about some of the biggest issues you're hearing about from folks in Mississippi. What do they say they want to see in the United States Senate? Yeah, well, I mean, Mississippi is a small state, 3 million people, and yet we have 3,200 already having died because of COVID-19. And because of the health disparities, you know that most of them are African-American, 65, uh, almost 70% of them are Black. And uh, we have about 112,000 infections here. So here in Mississippi, we have conservative leadership. You know, they uh, they they didn't want to shut down. Uh, it shut down, but then they reopened very, very early. And it was a snow result at all, to be honest with you. And, uh, you know, I tell everybody, look, I'm not a doctor, but I know how to do a doctor. And the, and the doctor I'm talking about is Dr. Fauci. So whatever he says, I'm going to do yeah. it. Whatever he says, wear a mask. Socially distance, I'm going to do it. And uh, and uh, do we get a vaccine? We all have to do this. So I just counsel everyone that um, it missed to be now mask used to be mandatory for like this this fast. And then they rescinded it. Now it's voluntary. So I'm volunteering to take a mask. And uh, so I'm telling everybody when I get to the Senate, I heard uh, even yesterday that Mitch McConnell uh, told the White House that he's not going to do a third year's bill. Well, that's crazy because we still have people unemployed. Mm-hmm. We still have rural hospitals that are closing. We still have people that can't pay their medical bills. So I'm the guy for Medicaid expansion. I'm the guy for bringing down the cost of prescription drugs. I'm the guy to keep these rural hospitals open. I'm the guy to make sure we get the $600 a week back in unemployment. And uh, I need to get there first. And so what everybody tells me is that they want some relief. I'm running against a, a, a person. Yes. who was uh, voted by Vanderbilt University is, is the most ineffective in the United States. The the, the most ineffective, mm-hmm. the worst one there. Right. And uh, I don't know if you've seen her commercials, but she's the one with that rubber hat on. Oh. That period, well, that's who she's wrong. Uh, I want to be the guy to move us. Is this? Okay, there I have you now. I'm sorry, it was breaking up. It's a little grainy, but you were saying that she's the one in the commercial with the hat. 
Yeah, yeah. In uh, 2014, she was a senator, but she was a statewide official. So she went to the Jefferson Davis Museum in the Gulf Coast of Mississippi. And, you know, Jefferson Davis was the father of the Confederacy. So she went in and she tried on the little rebel hat and the uh, she tried on the rebel uniform and she tried on the, the rifle. And that's fine. Look, if you want to do that, it was a museum. And I guess they have artifacts and you are. If you have a penchant for that, then do it. But she didn't have to say it was the best of business history now. When a when a, a time when the human beings could own another human being legally, that's not the best time to miss a position. So that's right. It's just what she is. I mean, she talked about public hangings and voter suppression. She said maybe we ought to make it. Uh, maybe we maybe we just ought to make it more difficult for those at the other universities to vote. Yeah. So I just tell her what other universities are those. And you have a personal connection to those other universities as a Howard graduate, right? I so do. That's the, those are the I universities do. she's talking about. Yeah. And in Mississippi, it would be Jackson State, Alcorn, Tulu, right. and all of that. So I keep asking her, name them. Who are they? Mm-hmm. Put them, let them come out of your mouth. And of course, she won't because she can't. Yeah. So that's who I'm running against. I mean, she's, she's holding our state back. She's costing us jobs. Uh, she's costing us income. She's costing us reputational opportunities. She's she's awful. She's got an awful record, and uh, she's got to go. And I hope hope we'll be able to displace her in in a few weeks, in in so, two weeks. Yeah. Yes, and you ran for um, Senate as well in twenty in twenty eighteen, uh, United States Senate. Yeah. You gained forty seven percent of the vote. What did you learn in that last election that you're applying every day in this one? I learned that I needed more time, more time, because uh, that race, um, that particular race for me, it was a race in the uh, United States on the Senate block. Uh, the incumbent fell sick, and he resigned in March, okay? And the election was in yeah. November. So I'd never, I'd not run for often 25 years. And I got gray hair and all that. Yeah. Folks had forgotten me. So I couldn't get my story out. I had to go six months to... Uh, to announce my office, to, to find a staff, to build a staff, to, to raise the money, mm-hmm. to get the message out, to go all over in six months. We still got 47% of the vote. So what I learned was that we needed more time. We need to build a more professional staff. And uh, we need to build the most robust, uh, uh, highest, deepest, widest coalition in Mississippi history. And we have done that. We're knocking on doors now mm-hmm. all over this state. I mean, I never knew folks were were receiving door knocking in a pandemic, you know. But we've got gloves and yeah. PPE and masks and digital devices. And, and so we're doing, we're getting a lot of, lot of good uh, response. So I learned that we needed more time That's- to raise more money. And we've done both. Yeah. So the, the other thing that I think is important is, um, you know, you make this distinct, distinction between you and um, the current senator about, um, who represents the old Mississippi versus the new? You also represent a form of older Mississippi too, in that this is you're not new to this rodeo. You you've been around for a yep. long time in yep. our political processes, but you're talking about a different kind of old. You already referenced her support of the Confederacy and kind of the the oppressive yep. way of thinking. What are some of the other ways that you would represent the new Mississippi and what should be true for Mississippi? 
Well, you know, I participated in the Black Lives Matter uh, movement here in July. And I'm really proud of that because they wouldn't let anybody my age lead it, right? Uh, these were yeah. led by millennials and Gen Zs, and uh, I really, really loved it. Mm-hmm. There was such energy and passion, you know, after the death of, death of uh, George Floyd, and they gathered and they protested peacefully. Uh, but the, um, the thing is that in that march, they did it themselves. And so my point is to try to make is I'm older, but I wanted them to relate to me. And so I had to tell the story about when I was their age, and I integrated an all-black, excuse me, an all-white public high school. I've got a mm-hmm. twin sister. And so the two of us and maybe 12 others in a student body of 800. And every day I'm the N-word. And every day someone's trying yeah. to fight me. Every day I had a tear in class, in chemistry class that sprayed me with a fire extinguisher. The teacher. And then the next year when the schools merged, uh, they elected me the black senior class president. You know, everything was dual, black, white, black water bounds, white water bounds, black this, black that. So I was the black senior class president. And so because when the students came over, the black teachers did not, none of them were offered a contract. So I let a walk out of the black students for three days, very successful. The, the, the school offered the teachers contracts, but I got called into the superintendent's office and they told me that since you led the march, you're the one that suffered the penalty. So I'm a senior, and they docked my GPA six points. Wow. Just as I'm trying to go to college. So I'm trying to go to college. I had to write essays about why my GPA was so low. I'm saying, well, I'm from Mississippi, and, you know, the, you know discrimination. And, and uh, so they know. But So I had to tell the Black Lives Matter generation, what we had to endure. Now, yeah. I'm not saying I'm John Lewis, uh, but I am saying I went through Jim Crow. So I know mm-hmm. what Jim Crow is all about and uh, systemic racism tattooed on my back as well. So now they know that and now they can identify with me and they're flocking into this campaign. So I, I think we're building what we didn't have 19 months ago. We're yeah. building because now they know who I am. They know my story. You don't have to explain me about Mississippi racism. You don't have to explain to me about a Confederate flag. I was against that flag 20 years ago. So mm-hmm. that's why we do it so well. Uh, they've got passion and energy, and now they're coming to the Mike Gatsby side, and I believe that's why we're going to win. You mentioned Jim Crow, Mike, and uh, I think it's important that in the midst of Jim Crow, um, you weren't the only one in your family who took it. Um, head on and just addressed what needed to be addressed. You also had a grandfather that started um, the first Black-owned hospital in Mississippi right in the midst of Jim Crow. Talk about what it was like learning from him and knowing that he was able to do something as impressive as opening a medical facility, which we know is so desperately needed now and then. Yeah, well, look, you've done your research. That's that's very, very clear. Thank you for uh, doing that. I have a this. team. Uh, so his name, <laughs> I have a team. Well, well thank, thanks to your team. They've done a good job. So uh, he died when I was six. But uh, he was my mom's father, Thomas Jefferson Hudson Sr. Uh, his parents were slaves. They brought him over to Mississippi from the, the states of Georgia and uh, Virginia. And uh, he was born in the, the Delta, where I ended up representing in the Congress. 
And he came, he came of age after Reconstruction, after all the federal troops went back to Washington, after Abraham Lincoln had long since died, and in the rise of a Klan and the rise of Jim Crow, he was 20 years old in that era. And he pretty much said, hey, guys, we're, we're, we're in for ourselves. We have to depend on one another. So the first thing he did is he started an organization called Afro-American Sons and Daughters. Now, think of that. In 1910, Afro-American Sons and Daughters had both getting lynched, you know. So he was a man of courage. And Afro-American Sons and Daughters started really uh, uh, really a workers' comp insurance company. So for 50 cents a month, when you went to work and got hurt, you could have some way to, to pay your bills, you know. And then he started a newspaper called The Century Voice. And by, by saying Century Voice, he's trying to project a better plight for black Mississippians in the next hundred years. Mm-hmm. So I read all of his essays and, you know, he couldn't say register vote, he'd be, he'd be killed. But he said, uh, men stay with your families, go to church, finish high school, go to the military. He, you know, uh, in World War II, he said buy war bonds. And then he built, and then uh, when black farmers got, a, they were sharecroppers and they got a bad deal from the white plantation owner, he, he loaned money to the sharecroppers at a lower rate of interest than the white plantation owner. So he was a, a banker. Uh, I found out that, I said, well, how how's that this man lived? And I found out that he was also a bootlegger for white policemen. So, so yeah. for, for, for protection, right? For protection, he gave them free liquor out of the back of his house because they had to. So, uh, and then he said, I'm tired of our women having babies in the cotton field. Let's build us a hospital. So he got all of them to give a dollar. In 1924, he built a hospital, hospital, 35 beds. But then it connected with Harry, Howard, all of the medical schools, HBCUs, and they would all uh, fulfill their residence requirements in the hospital. So he was a oh magnificent man, a magnificent man. And uh, I was born in my grandpa's hospital, right? So who can say that? Wow. Uh, there's another thing that he did. Uh, he had some relative wealth. You know, for that time, he was relatively wealthy. Uh, he was also a woman's rights advocate. All the black folks began to go to Detroit, Chicago, and Milwaukee, you know, in the Great Migration. He had uh, he had four daughters, and he gave them all an option to leave. So my mom was the only one who stayed. His other three daughters left. And he gave them money for a brownstone. And all three of them went to Chicago, and he told them, okay, babies, uh, I'm going to give you enough money to buy your own brownstone, four stories. You can live in the basement and you can rent out the upper tier and you'll never have to depend on any man. He did that. So, wow. uh, I mean, he was, a, he was quite a guy. And uh, he's sort of like my my idol as, as far as that's concerned. That is incredible. Like, I hope there's a whole documentary yep. or a docuseries for this. This is so good. And it's so interesting because yet, you I'm talked about... Say that again. No, go ahead, finish. Well, I no, was going to no, say I'm just that. Interject. I'm saying I hope I hope that there will be one day. Oh yeah, it has to be, and it's and it's fascinating too because 
here you are, like your commitment to healthcare policy intersects with the hospital. And then even this idea of sharecropping connects to your history as the secretary of agriculture. Like there are all of yes. these overlays and that has to yes. feel somewhat fulfilling to the family's overall legacy. Talk about um, what legacy you hope to to leave when you go to the United States Senator. You know, what you plan on delving into first. What's the first bill you want to introduce? What's the policy that you're like, this is how I know, you know, I'm going to be working on behalf of all of Mississippi when I get there. All right. Thank you. So that that's a great question. Uh, when I get to the U.S. Senate, uh, I'll, I'll say it this way. Mississippi is a small state and we believe in seniority. So so the senators we, t- we send there, they tend to stay a long time. Uh, you've heard of Senator Jund, uh, even though he was sort of a racist, he was known picking judges. Senator Stennis uh, was known as uh, being a chairman of the Appropriations Committee and Armed Services, so he built the modern Navy. Senator Cochran, the gentleman who died, uh, was over agriculture. I've already done that. So I want to leave my legacy in the health. I want to be the health care senator. So the first thing I want to do is uh, make sure we can bring Medicaid expansion to Mississippi because 90% of it is paid for by the federal government. So we got all these poor people with all these illnesses, hypertension and diabetes and heart disease and asthma and all of that. They won't go to the doctor because they know that if they if they go, they're going to get a property bill that they cannot pay. Mm-hmm. So then they uh, won't go and then all these maladies just exacerbate and they just get worse. And then when they go, there's a greater outlay to the state of Mississippi that it can't pay. And then the rural hospitals have bills that it can't pay. So I want to remedy all of that and get Medicaid expansion. 90% of that will uh, uh, go to pay these bills. And it's going to cover a half a million Mississippians the next day. The next day. So I want, to be, I want that to be my legacy. Medicaid expansion, reducing the cost of prescription drugs keeping the um, rural hospitals open, giving people more confidence to go to the doctor because they can pay that bill. That is what I want to do day one. Someone asked in here, and I think it's such a good one, um, especially when you think of, again, the connection you have to agriculture, the Pickford settlement. What do you think needs to happen next to ensure that Black farmers um, don't continue to become an endangered species, right? Like we know that everything has been done to try to take out black farmers. What do we do to reinstill um, the power that they deserve and the economic support base that we know that we need to ensure our farmers are good? Thank you. Well, you know, I was involved with the Pickford lawsuit and it was kind of unusual. I got uh, really, really criticized for that because people were saying you were the cabinet sector over USDA, which is the agency that you sued. And I said, well, who better than me? Because I know where the bones are buried. I know exactly. I know what they did wrong. I know. Uh, so we settled that lawsuit. We didn't have the first deposition, not the first trial day, because the Justice Department and USDA, they knew, they already knew they had done wrong. So uh, they were just like Roberto Duran, you know, when he said no mas. So uh, we got $1.2 billion from that. And every black farmer who was eligible got $50,000. On the same day, it was the largest civil rights settlement in America's history, 
plus enough money to pay the taxes on the $50,000. So what has to happen now to remedy the ills of Pickford is to make sure that USDA uh, can really become the lender of last resort. I mean, if you are a qualified farmer, then you ought to get a loan from USDA. So what ought to happen now is treating them with respect, not calling them inward, not throwing away their loan application, making sure that you can follow them and make sure they get good credit. Um, just treat them like human beings, like, like you would treat everyone else, and then make sure the resources are there for them and the technical training so they can make these farms go. So that's it. Just treat them fairly. Treat them like consumers that they are. Treat them like citizens that they are. Make sure that, that when they pay these loans back, then they qualify, qualify for another one. Um, and Secretary Espy, another thing that I think is important to note is you would be going into uh, the United States Senate as a Democrat, caucusing with the Democrats. Um, some of us probably wish you were there yep. right now, given this confirmation process of Donald Trump's latest Supreme Court justice. Talk to us about, um, given the fact that you would caucus with the Democrats, where are they falling short on the fight um, to prevent this woman from being named to the Supreme Court, Amy Coney Barrett? What do you think they should be doing today since uh, Lindsey Graham railroaded over the Democrats who did not attend today's vote? He railroaded over them. I said that they should sue them. What do you think should happen? Mm -hmm. Well, you know, that was a rule in the in the Judiciary Committee, uh, uh, like a rule yeah. that was in Ballard until today, uh, where there would there would be at least two Democrats on the committee when they yes. would pass a vote to pass out that nominee to the board. And uh, Lindsey uh, Lindsey Graham just went over that. I mean, he ignored it like like it was nothing. And so the Democrats all boycotted. So, I mean, once they would sue, I mean, honestly, they could do that. But when would that, I mean, it would be appealed, appealed, appealed to the Supreme Court and she'll be on the court, right? So that's not if be, we buy would, time would be overturned. So we might be able to buy some time. How would you buy time? Because okay. I don't think that all they right. would rule, well, you, you rule know, that quickly. All right. Well, let me think about that. I think uh, <laughs> that might. Well, here's my here's my let main me think point. About that. My main point is okay. if you are um, working on behalf and advocating on behalf of your constituents, and you being in the Senate, that would make yeah. you one of four black people in the Senate. Part of your constituency is Black America, and frankly, people who are yes. just well intentioned and don't want to undo how we used to operate, which was we didn't confirm Supreme Court justices this close to the election. Part of what I've heard all day is people want someone in there fighting. So what does your fight look like? Beyond the Supreme Court nomination process, how else would you be fighting for all of America in the Senate? You mean with regard to the, to our Amy Court uh, Barrett? Or, you can or use that or any other example, because right now people are just like, they're not fighting for us. What's the point of us going out to risk our lives to vote for people who are just letting this happen? Like, they're not seeing any real fight? Well, I mean, the, 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 honestly, the fight comes November 3rd because, uh, yeah, uh, yeah, comes November 3rd. Once you get Joe Biden and then Kamala, Kamala Harris, and we can flip the Senate, then the fight is over. 
the fight is over. Yeah. The fight, the, the power now goes, the leverage goes to the Democratic side. There's a lot of talk about immediately expanding the court from 9 to 11, right? And then you may have two justices that will be progressive there. So there's a lot of talk about that. So, you know, there's a lot of things we can do, but we just got to get the levers of power. Uh, uh, I'm going to tell you something. I was on a Zoom call the other day. I remember something that made me really happy to be a Democrat. And that is in 1987. I was on the floor of the House of Representatives, and there was a vote. And, and the, uh, you know, they always take 15 minute votes. So the voting clock was about to expire. And Jim, um, Jim Wright was a speaker, and he knew that the vote was about to expire, but the Democrats didn't have votes. So even though it went to 15 and he should have shut down the clock, he casually turned and began to talk to the parliamentarian, like ignoring the Republicans who were about to go up, apoplectic, you know, the clock, the clock, the clock, the clock, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, Trent Lott from Mississippi was banging on the desk because they had won the vote, but Jim Wright never acknowledged it. So uh, I saw him do something I have never seen before done or since. What Wright did is that he suspended the rules. He had someone else make a motion to turn the clock back 30 minutes. He turned wow. daylight back 30 minutes to give him enough time to find recalcitrant voters. And he brought some people by their ear from the cloakroom. They switched their votes and the Democrats won that vote. I said, look at that. That is power. He turned back. The the twenty four hour clock thirty minutes by an act of Congress. Wow! I saw him do it. So that's mm-hmm. power, and uh, so whatever we can do that with that in the Senate, but he could do it at the majority. So we got to get the majority back, and mm-hmm. and uh, we can do just about anything. Yeah, well, I I definitely hear you. We you had a little bit of a chop in the connection, but I hear you on getting the majority back just have to make sure that the majority remembers the people who helped them get there. And that's, what's most important. Um, Sometimes people feel a little unheard and not seen. And so I know with you there, um, secretary SB, it'll be that much better. So um, hopefully we'll hear some great results from you on election night. I'm so grateful you can make this time. I'm so grateful for the lessons learned for you in 2018 and please let our followers know how they can support you now um, and leading up to November 3rd. Well, thank you so much for this time. Thanks to all of your uh, listeners and viewers. I really appreciate that. So we've got another few days to go. Uh, the My Kids Me movement is um, is uh, state, is countrywide. So you can uh, go to sp4senates.com. You can volunteer. You can volunteer to uh, old school or new school. Uh, you can peer-to-peer text, and that's been done all over the country, all 50 states and territories here in the Mississippi. You can uh, you can uh, call. We have uh, uh, Ava DuVernay from L.A. We talked uh, a little while ago, and uh, she's uh, signed up for two call sessions from Los Angeles here. And you that's old great. school, a lot of people are writing postcards that, that you can do that you. And you can just volunteer. All you can city, which is what we need as well. Yeah. Absolutely. Thank you so very much. 
for Agloo. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. So you all heard it here first. This is Secretary Espy running for the United States. Of course, right when I get ready to end, I get a call. But I was saying this is Secretary <laughs> Espy running for the United States Senate in Mississippi. Please show him your support. Please continue to learn about his candidacy, his incredible family. He's standing on the shoulders of some greats. And now we will also help to champion him and stand on his shoulders as well. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much, Ms. Ryan. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye-bye. For all my children of the light, born in the sinning, but steady striving to do right. My people are warriors. All we know is to fight. Pray. They see God in everything I write here.